You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, it's good to be with you again this week, Northway Church. So glad you've joined us again online. Uh, For those that are joining in again for the very first time, I want to welcome you to this online experience. My name is Shay Sumlin, one of the pastors here at Northway Church. And so glad you're with us this week. You've caught us in week two of a series that we're doing called A Theology of Suffering, where we're spending some time looking at many of the hardships and trials that so many of us face in our lives and looking at them through a biblical lens. Even even the global trial we're all going through right now, looking at it through a biblical lens. And what we did last week is we began by looking at God's purpose in trials. We looked at the very first half of James chapter 1, and as we considered God's purpose in trials, we talked about, and what we saw in the text is that trials from a Christian point of view are not to be viewed as some sort of cosmic accident that are detached from meaning and purpose that are meant to leave us towards um, uh, an angle of hopelessness or despair, but rather we as Christians are to view our trials through the lens or the attitude of joy as an act of faith, believing that our God is sovereignly in control and is working these trials out in a way that will ultimately lead for his glory and our good. And that when we find ourselves in confusion in the midst of this trial and angst and uncertain of where to go next, that we have a benevolent heavenly father who longs to give us his wisdom if we would only come and ask for it that we might grab that wisdom, hold on more fastly to Jesus Christ who holds us and to be transformed by his grace in the midst of that trial. Now, if you remember from last week, we alluded to one of the dangers that any of us can have in the midst of trials is to somehow assume the worst about God, that because of what we're going through, that maybe God has lied to us, maybe God has somehow forgotten about us, maybe we've done something wrong and this is God judging us or worse, that this is some malicious intent by God as a puppeteer of evil who has brought this trial out of means of harm and malintent towards us. And so what James is going to do, and in fact, if you, if you got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn with me back to the book of James. We're going to look at the second half of this letter. We're going to look at verse 13 and following at the response that a Christian is to have towards this perspective of trials. And what James is going to do in verse 13 and following is he's going to more or less call a timeout here. And he's really going to do three things in the back half of this chapter. One, he's going to show why it is actually impossible for God himself to seek to use trials as an entrapment of evil upon us with malicious intent. And then secondly, he's going to show us how the process of sin and evil in the midst of a trial actually works itself out. And then thirdly, how is it we as Christians should respond to these truths in the midst of the trials that we walk through? And so let's jump in here, verse 13 and following. Let's look at the the character of God for just a moment. Verse 13, James says, let no one say when he is tempted that I'm being tempted by God. And this is interesting here because the language shifts a bit. In verses 1 through 12, we focused in on the word testing, that one of the purposes of a trial in our lives is to be used as a test to bring about maturity in our faith. But now the language shifts from testing to tempting. And that word tempt here uh, is also an interesting word because the Greek word for tempt that is in this verse, in verse 13, is actually the same root word that is used for trial in verse 2. 
Uh, in fact, they can be used interchangeably. Uh, we see this. Think about a passage some of us may have memorized at one point in our lives. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has seized you except what is common to man, but God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear, but when you are tempted, he'll provide a way out so you can stand up under it. That word tempted can also be translated in the Greek as trial. It could be, it could be said this way, no trial has seized you except what's common to man, but God is faithful. He'll not let you be tried beyond what you can bear, but when you are tried, he'll provide a way out for you to stand up under it. And so you can use these words interchangeably. And in fact, in Greek nomenclature, they understood that the human mind could go either way. When a trial comes into our life, we can view it positively as a test that is being used to refine us and strengthen us, or we can view it negatively. And in this context, there is, there is the possibility of us viewing this as an actual temptation, a malintent of God as cruel and unusual punishment brought into our lives. The Greeks understood we could go either way, but God's intention is the former, that a trial is to be viewed as a test leading us further to Christ rather than a temptation that God is using to lead us away from himself or Christ in that instance. And that's why Paul says at the end of verse 13, for God cannot be tempted with evil and he himself tempts no one. We're gonna find out later on in verse 17 exactly who God is, that God is good and God is holy and that never changes. But right now, James is assuming that in verse 13, and he's saying, we as believers are not to assume in the midst of our trial that this trial is somehow God's fault as the result of a, a flaw in his character, that somehow God is using this to, to inflict harm and malintent in our lives. No, God can not only not be tempted by evil, God himself can cannot tempt anyone else with evil. Uh, now, you need to understand what that doesn't mean is that God in his sovereignty does not permit evil, does not allow evil into existence and in the midst of our trials. See, what a lot of people wanna do is we don't know what to do with the tension of the sovereignty of God and evil and suffering because God is sovereign and he's good and evil is not then how do these coincide? And this is so difficult to explain. A lot of times what we want to do as Christians is just take the easy way out and try to separate the two because we want to get God off the hook. But understand, God doesn't need us to get off the hook. We don't need, he doesn't need us to get him off the hook. The scriptures don't try to get God off the hook. That God is involved sovereignly here. He's not the causation of evil, but he is sovereignly using it for his divine purposes. And there's an enigma there. James um, is speaking to an issue that we see so often, even in the book of Job. Again, we saw in Job, Job is a prime example that God is not the author or causation of evil, but, but in his sovereignty who permits it in Job's life. Now understand clearly, nothing happens to Job that God doesn't grant the authority to be able to happen. God is sovereign over it. He is allowing it, but he is not the author or the cause for malicious purposes. Now, you and I, again, that's a hard thing for a finite mind to get our heads around is this infinite enigma of God's sovereignty and the presence of evil. And we don't know how, to, how those two necessarily coincide, but let me just tell you something. I, and I think the scriptures tell us this, but I would rather have that tension present than to somehow try to remove the sovereignty of God from the equation um, and, and, and really 
given the choice between a God who is not in control or worse yet, asleep at the will, at the wheel, that is far more terrifying to me than the idea of a God who is sovereign over evil, but yet has promised to walk with me in the midst of it. I would much rather take the latter than the former. And the scriptures tell us that's the tension that's at place. God is good. God is sovereign. He allows evil, but he's not causing it for our harm, but rather for his glory and our good. But it's how we can begin to think and react in the midst of our trials is in this manner. And what happens in human nature and our sinful nature is we begin to start blame shifting immediately when trials come in. We want to know who caused this and we want to we want to assign blame. And it's the very same thing that happened in the garden. You remember in Genesis 3, um, after God had put Adam and Eve in the garden, he, he tells them they can eat from any tree they want in the garden, except for the one tree, the knowledge of good and evil, because in the day that they eat of it, they will surely die. Now, the question we all have, the existential question we all have is, why did God put the tree in the garden of knowledge of good and evil? What was he doing there? Why didn't you just not have that tree and everything would be fine? But here's the deal. God didn't put it there for malintent. God put that tree there to define the relationship from the very beginning that the relationship between God and his creation was going to be based on trust, that we believe who God is, that he's good and he's holy, and that what he promises is for our good and his glory, and we're going to trust him in that. But if you remember, what happens is serpent comes along, entices the first man and woman there, entices them and leads them astray. They, they end up eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and in that moment, sin enters humanity, and God has to judge that sin. Now, as soon as this happens, remember what Adam does. He runs and hides. But what, what does Adam do the very first thing Adam does when God comes to the man, he comes to Adam asking them, why did he do what he did? Where is he? What does Adam immediately do? He begins to blame. He goes, this woman you gave me. It's this woman. She was the one that ate of the tree. She's the one that gave it to me. It's this woman right here. It's her fault. It's all her fault. And he's blaming the woman. You can kind of see the gear start clicking a little bit. And then Adam goes, no, 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 wait a minute. Actually, it wasn't the woman. It was the woman you gave me. It's your fault, God. It's your fault. Had you not given me this woman, had you not put that tree in the garden, none of this would have happened. And all of a sudden, the blame is on God because God is the one who's in control. He's the one, ultimately, that we want to blame that some sort of malintent has taken place here. I remember early on in my pastoral years having this conversation. I've had this so many countless times, but this one I'll share with you is just probably the most extreme. But I had a guy who I counseled, who had uh, recently lost his job. And so he, he had received a pay cut at his work. He no longer could provide for his family as he had uh, previously provided for. And so because he had received this pay cut at work, he started getting desperate. And so he decided he was going to get back at the company. And so he starts embezzling money from the company. He starts kind of like office space, just just uh, skimming off some pennies off the top and bringing it in. Finally, he gets caught and then he gets fired and then now, instead of trusting in the Lord in this situation, he begins to take control in his own hands, and he starts returning to a life that he once had back in the BC days. He starts getting back into dealing some drugs, and he starts getting into this drug ring where eventually he gets busted there, he gets caught, he gets arrested, and he's thrown in jail. And after he had gotten released, we sit down to talk, and it was just, you could see the venom coming from his veins towards God. 
He was so bitter. He was so angry at God. This was all God's fault. And I remember sitting there with him, can you, saying, can you just back up through the last five events that happened and tell me how that was God's fault? See, but it's the same temptation that was in the garden at the beginning, that when trials come, we want to put the finger on God for what is happening as if there's malintent here. And in some form or fashion, we do the same thing. So what James does to counter this in verses 14 and 15, as he does at every turn in this chapter, is he corrects that erroneous thinking that we're prone to have. And it's almost as if verse 14 and 15 should be put in parentheses, as as if to say, while we're talking about this response that we're to have towards God in the midst of our trials, let's time out, let's clearly define for a moment how sin and how temptation actually works. And and here's what you need to know. When James is speaking in James chapter 1, he's not speaking here to the type of sins that lead to trials but rather he is focusing on the sinful responses that we can have in the midst of trials. Biblically speaking, there are three categorical reasons why we have trials in the human experience. Three categorical reasons why we all suffer. Number one, we suffer because of our own sins, our own foolish decisions and our rebellion towards God and rebellion towards man that brings collateral damage upon ourselves. I can choose to go drink drink and get drunk and get behind a wheel And any damage that happens there, that is collateral damage from my own sin that has brought suffering in my life. The second reason, though, is the sins of others. It's other people's foolish decisions and their rebellion towards God and their fellow man that can bring collateral damage upon us and and make us victims of their sin. And so somebody else can go choose to drink and get behind a wheel and then have collateral damage on me or my, my family and now I suffer as a result of their sin. But the third most common reason why we suffer, biblically speaking, is the one that's universal to all of us. And that is simply the suffering that comes from living in a Genesis 3 world, a world that is marred by sin, it is broken and fallen. To where now, because of sin and God's judgment upon the earth, we, we have bodies that don't work like they should. We don't live in these bodies forever, but we experience death. We have terminal diseases. We have tornadoes and tsunamis in the world around us. And yes, we have microscopic viruses that can literally shut an entire world down where people lose jobs and lose lives. And these are the three common reasons. But James focus here isn't necessarily on the sins that cause trials and suffering, but really here is our sinful responses in the midst of trials to when we seek to blame God as a result of it. And so James says here in verse 14 and following, let me explain why it is that we tend to go further downward in a spiral when trials tend to come upon us. He says this in verse 14, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Now, again, same as it is in the garden, it's not as if God put that tree in the garden to get Adam to fall. He put that tree in the garden to get Adam to trust and to believe that God is who he says he is, and he's worthy of his promises. And Adam fell, and we fall too in the midst of our own trials because, according to verse 14 and 15, of when we are enticed and lured. This is hunting and fishing language right here. 
Understand the distinction between how Satan, our adversary, works and how our flesh works. In the midst of our trials, we have an adversary, the devil, who loves to whisper into our ears. You know why this trial is happening, right? It's because God has forgotten about you. Or it's because you've, you've messed up so much that God is now punishing you. Or because God is asleep at the wheel. Or worse yet, God is not who you think he is. He is more evil than you ever knew. Like this is what the enemy does in this moment. He, he comes speaking lies into our life, trying to cut the legs of what God wants to do for us in this trial. And in that moment, understand though, Satan is only the deceiving bait. Ultimately, when it comes to our own actions, James says it is our own desire, our own flesh that grabs that bait and is now lured away. We need to be careful in the midst of trials, lest we resort to the devil made me do it. No, according to this theology, according to James here, it is our own sinful hearts that deceive ourselves, that take that bait and then run after that which our flesh wanted all along, that which is counterfeit to the reality of who God is. And so James says in verse 16, he says, do not be deceived my brothers. Don't listen to those lies. Don't be like your forefathers who in the midst of trials forsook clinging to God. They distrusted him and they ran far away from him, blaming him like he was some master puppeteer of evil in their lives. No, James says in verse 17, if that is your struggle, what you need is some good old-fashioned theology 101 concerning the nature of God and who he is, so that when you're in the midst of these trials, you know clearly who your heavenly father is, what he's capable of, and what he's not capable of. You see this in verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above. In context of chapter one, let me ask us a question here. What is the good gift that James is referring to in the context of chapter one? Do you know what it is? It's trials. Trials is the good gift that God gives. Now, again, God's economy that we learned last week is not like ours. None of us would say trials are a good gift. But again, from a theology 101 point of view, we see here that God only does what God is. God only gives out of who he is, even if sometimes that gift is wrapped in harsh packages. And so notice who God is in the rest of that verse at the end of verse 17. This every good gift and perfect gift is from above coming down from the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Do you remember in the book of Genesis, what lights were. The greater light that governs the day, the lesser light that governs the night is the the sun and the moon and the stars and the expanse of the sky. And James tells us here that those lights up in the sky at night, they have something in common with the one who made them. Do stars ever move? No. Stars never move. They are fixed in the universe. An old Old school maritime navigation, we can use the stars, still can, as navigational points to know which way is north, south, east, west. Uh, We can can determine what seasons we're in because these stars are in the same place at the same time every year. They never change. They never move. And James says here, those stars 
happen to be indicative of the very one who made them. In his goodness to his children, God never changes. There is no variation in his character. His goodness is always fixed. God will always and forever be good. There is no evil that dwells within God. He cannot be tempted by evil, nor can he tempt us with evil. And when we run towards evil, when we run towards holding God into contempt in the midst of a trial, that's not God, that is our own flesh. That is our own sin that has enticed us and lured us away, not God. And James says, no matter what happens to you, no matter what comes your way, no matter how horrific or painful the trials are that you have been walking through, the one thing that you can absolutely hang your hat on is that God is good and God is perfect in his dealings towards you. He can only give you what is good because that is his nature. And so in verse, 14, verse 18, speaking of good gifts here, James says, let me give you exhibit A. And I'm going to give you an example of what a good gift is that God has given. And the example that he's going to give is you and I and the salvation that we have received. He says in verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruit of his creation. Now, at first glance, that seems like James is talking about God's creating of human beings and the, the good gift it was that he gave us life to begin with. And that's true. But I think in this context, what James is referring to is he's speaking of the salvific work of God that first redeemed us in Jesus Christ that in his sovereign will, he predestined me. He called me forth through faith. He opened my heart in response to the truth of the gospel. And he brought me forth to new life in Jesus Christ. And like a new baby, I am born again in Jesus now. And he says, the same God that brought life to you through the cross is the, still the same God that is seeking to bring life to you through your trial. God wants to do something new in you in this trial. That's why he's allowed it to happen. He wants to birth something new that you just can't see right now. And so when trials comes, James says, don't let your first response be faulting God and shifting the blame to him. He says, no, you know better than that. Why? Because you know in verse 17 and 18 who your God is, that he is good and he is perfect and that never changes. And that you know, according to verses one through 12 that we saw last week, what he's ultimately accomplishing bringing you more of Jesus, bringing himself more glory and you more good in the midst of this trial. So therefore, in verse 19, when this trial comes, James says, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, meaning don't be so quick to get mad at God in the midst of your trial. Why? Because of verse 20, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. James says, you need to know that in the midst of your trial, God is seeking to produce a kind of righteousness in you that you could not produce on your own. However, when your first response is anger towards God and shaking your fist at him, in contempt, it is simply only evidence that you don't quite yet understand and trust the divine nature, the divine character, and the divine purposes that God has for you in the midst of your hardships. He says, instead of just blowing up at God 
and concluding that he's evil, we need to do a better job in verse 19 of listening to what God might be trying to say to us in the midst of this trial. Something that can point us towards a greater understanding of who he is and a greater trust in who he is that will help carry us through this trial for the long haul. Now, you and I both know that is easier said than done. And just like Adam in the garden, we're always, again, looking to blame somebody. And so what James is going to do again, verse 21 and following, he's going to talk about how to cultivate that original attitude of joy and trust that, that gets shaped for the long haul. And he's going to show us the vital role that our Bibles play when it comes to the midst of our trials that we have. Three specific movements you'll see in verse 21 and following. He's going to show us, one, how much uh, we, we need to approach the Word of God in our trial, how we need to approach the Word of God in our trial. And then secondly, how we should sit under that Word, under His counsel in the midst of the trial. Then thirdly, how we should walk away from having spent time under His counsel in the midst of that trial. You see the first two, though, in verse 21. He says in verse 21, therefore, Put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. He says the first thing that we need to do in approaching the wisdom of God or the word of God in the midst of a trial is that we need to get rid of any contaminated idea that assumes we know what God is up to right here. Any, any wicked attitudes or accusations towards God, and we need to set those aside. And then when we sit under the instruction of God to listen, we're to do so with meekness. And again, meekness doesn't mean weakness. It's the same word that is attributed to Jesus. It's the idea of restrained strength. It means you have the opportunity to blow up at God. You have the opportunity to say you know more than God right now, but you're going to restrain that in this moment. And out of humility, we're going to choose to say, God, what do you have to say to me? It's, it's us humbly saying, God, man, I'm frustrated right now. I'm, I'm confused. I'm angry, but I'm going to set all that aside right now of what I think you're doing. And I'm going to sit and I'm going to listen to your counsel because I'm going to trust that you have something to say to me and something to do in and through me. And so I'm listening, God. And when you do that, James says, you receive then his word implanted. And in fact, the same promises of God's word that first grafted us in to our salvation, those same promises are what are going to hold us fast in the midst of this trial. So James says, first, when you approach God in the midst of a trial, set aside all your assumptions that God is wicked and evil in the midst of this. Set those aside and then sit under his counsel and listen. But then thirdly, in verse 22 and following, He's going to talk about how we're then to walk away from that counsel and how you'll know you're walking away rightly so that we aren't people who just simply heard the truth of God that went in one ear and went out the other ear so that really I'm no different as a result of this trial. I'm the same as I was before it started or worse yet, I'm more bitter. Now he says in verse 22, be doers of the word, not hearers only, lest you deceive yourself. This becomes an interesting verse, verse 22, especially if you were to snap it on to the halfway point of verse 19. Listen to how those verses sound when they're combined. Verse 19, know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear. But verse 22, however, make sure that when you're hearing, you're not just a hearer of the word, but you actually become a doer of the word. James says one of the ways 
that we are going to endure through the trials that we face is by coming to the word of God, yes and amen, but that it doesn't just end there. We don't just come to the word of God, but the way that you know that we're listening to it rightly is that by the Spirit's power, we begin to look more like Jesus when we're done listening to God's word. We begin to act more like Jesus when we're done listening to his word in the midst of this trial. All too many times I see this play out. I've seen it play out in my own life. I'm sure you've seen it in yours, and I see it in so many of our church. Folks who are in seasons where they're not walking with God, and then the wheels fall off. What is the first response most people tend to do, even who are marginally confessing to be Christians, when the wheels fall off will then say, oh man, uh, all this is going crazy. I, I better get right with God. I better start going back to church. I better start reading my Bible. I start, better, better start giving, better start praying. And we start going through all these meritous lists that we feel like we need to start doing because the wheels just fell off. And that's part of our human nature. And all those are good in and of themselves. But if you listen closely, what's really going on under that is it's exposing the fact that that's not a patient, steadfast, clinging to the wisdom and counsel of God, seeking to submit ourselves to his will and this time and all times. What it's really exposing is a legalistic version of treating God like a lucky rabbit's foot. What it's really saying is that all I really want to do is run back to God so this trial will go away. And then once the trial goes away, we tend to just kind of resort right back to where we were. But here's the question. What if the trial never goes away? What if this season we're in isn't just a season? What if this trial goes on indefinitely, chronically, perpetually? Is Jesus still enough for you? Is Jesus still enough for us in that situation? See, God doesn't want to just be a genie's lamp and a lucky rabbit's foot that we run to to get us out of jams. God wants to be our all in all at all times, not just sometimes. The end goal of God is not just that we would get through the trial, but that we would get more of him in the trial. That's the end goal. So that when we, we prove in that sense to not just be a hearer of God's word, but a doer. We're not to be just hearers only, but, but doers lest we deceive ourselves. And that word deceive, by the way, is another mathematical term, means to miscalculate, that you think you're trusting in God when in actuality you're not. It's a miscalculation to think that you are. So in verse 23 and 24, James says, let me give you an illustration of what this deception can look like of being a hearer of God's word and not a doer. He says in verse 23, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and then goes away and at once forget what he was like. Now, there's two ways to look at this passage. One is in a general sense. Being a hearer and not a doer is like looking in a mirror, seeing an image of ourselves, and then walking away and forgetting what it was like. And that's true. That's a general sense. But there's another more detailed understanding that this verse could mean. Um, by specific terms that James uses and doesn't use in this verse. The word man in verse 23, it's not the typical word that's used for mankind. The word anthropos, which means mankind, men and women together, kind of all of humanity, general sense. He actually uses the word aner in that verse, which is the literal word for male, a male only. 
Now, I don't know if this is what James has in mind, but if it's true, this is hilarious in this verse right here. What's the difference between how a female looks in the mirror and how a male looks in the mirror? Have you ever noticed this? If any married man right now is about to testify to this, at least generally speaking, when a woman goes into the bathroom in the morning to put on her makeup, she doesn't just look in the mirror. I mean, she is two millimeters from the mirror. And she busts out that tackle box and she starts pulling out surgical instruments and she starts contorting her face in ways that are not humanly possible. And she opens that, stretches that eye out. She opens that orbital cavity and then she now puts on the paint and the primer and she puts this whole thing together, man. It is a work of art. And you single men are gonna take this by faith right now. But one day if Lord gives you marriage, you will see this masterpiece unfold. That when a woman comes into the bathroom, she enters in as a caterpillar and she comes out as a monarch. It is a chrysalis that takes place. It is an intense deal. She's not looking to the mirror for information. She's looking to that mirror for transformation. Now, when a male looks into the mirror, what's a dude typically do when he gets up in the morning, looks in the mirror? Kind of looks in there and goes, eh, not bad. And then walks off. At least that's typical. If your marriage roles are reversed right now, then that's another sermon for another day we're gonna have to deal with. But if this is what James is getting at, James, no, 1 Corinthians 9 says James was married. And so if this is what he's getting at, James is saying, when you're sitting under the counsel of God in the midst of a trial, you need to approach the wisdom of God like a woman would approach the mirror, not like a man would, lest you become a hearer and not a doer. In verse 25, James says, no, this is how you're to approach the wisdom of God. The one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, but forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. It's interesting. In verse 23 and 24, you have the word looks. And in verse 25, you have the word looks. And you wouldn't know it in your Bible, but in the Greek, those are two different words for looks. The word for look in verses 23 and 24 means to gaze or to glance at and then suddenly walk away. The word that's used for look in verse 25 is the same word that was used of Mary Magdalene when she approached the tomb of Jesus and she peered forward. It means to look intently. She looked into that tomb and every crack and crevice to see where the body of Jesus lay and it wasn't there. She studied it intently. And this is what it means for us to, to lean into the wisdom of God in the midst of a trial intently, not flippantly. And notice what James calls the word of God there, what he calls the Bible. He doesn't call it the word of God, doesn't call it the Bible, doesn't call it the scriptures. He calls it the law of liberty, the perfect law of liberty. This is the gospel. This is the good news of the freedom we've been given. Remember, James is writing to a Jewish audience that has put their faith in Christ and they were well aware of the law of God and their inability to keep it. And James himself knew what it was like now as a believer in Christ to be free, to be, to be free from his enslavement and now free unto Christ, to be delivered from sin, Satan, and death itself. And, and here it's used in the context of trials, that when you come to the word of God, you're coming to the very source that has the ability to set you free, not free from your trials, but free from your enslavement to them. And so do you see why verse 19 through 25 is here? Simply put, that when you find yourself afflicted by whatever kind of trials you're walking through, your response is not to lash out in anger towards God and hold him in contempt, but rather to sit meekly and humbly under his counsel 
asking him for the wisdom that you need to learn and what it is you need to see so that you can walk away transformed and free in Christ. Remember, one of the main ideas of this chapter is that trials exist to mature our faith, to prove that our faith in Christ is real and not just lip service. How do you ultimately know that? Verse 26 and 27, and we'll close here. James says in verse 26, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. It's interesting that James chooses the word religion here. It's a word that's rarely used in your New Testament. It means maybe what you have come to associate it to mean these days, those external ceremonial traditions that you would have, these external things that would somehow give indication of what your belief really is. James says, whatever that confession is, whatever those external things are, maybe it's going to church, reading your Bible, wearing a cross around your neck, putting a fish on your car. Maybe it's those, just the, the rhythm and routines of the liturgical motions that you go through in your given week or day, whatever it may be that would outwardly express the fact that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. James says, if that's your claim externally, but yet at the same time, you cannot bridle your tongue towards God and you hold him in contempt. James says, if that's how you truly feel, if that's what's being exposed in this trial, then whatever religious appearance you've previously had becomes worthless. It just becomes outward signs with no inward transformation. He says, however, here's how you really know how your faith is truly being transformed to a doer of God's word as the result of these trials. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. You wonder what's the difference between the person in verse 26 and the person in verse 27? Well, one is a hearer and the other is a doer. One came to the wisdom of God and walked away unchanged, maybe worse. But the other one sat under that wisdom. And it shows that that person not only inwardly is righteousness and faith being cultivated in their relationship with God through this trial, but then it evidences itself by outwardly them going and becoming a ministering agent to others in their afflictions helping them with the same healing that they receive. This is what fascinates me about the first chapter of the book of James. How does this whole chapter start? Starts with a bunch of men and women struggling in their trials and their afflictions, wondering where is God and has he abandoned me? And then how does the chapter end? It ends with these same people running to the wisdom of God, sitting under the counsel of God, and as a result being transformed by it in such a way that they now run out to go help those who are suffering even worse than they are. And in context here, widows and orphans, two of the most vulnerable groups in your entire Bible. Isn't that amazing? James says one of the purposes of trials is to wean you off you and wean you onto Christ in such a way that allows you to go care for others who are actually maybe worse off than you are. When Jip Brady spoke to this same thing a few weeks ago in our care value, when he read from 2 Corinthians 1, which puts it this way, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction 
with a comfort with which we ourselves were comforted by God. Like what a beautiful picture of God redeeming these trials so that he can then turn us into agents to be helpful towards the redemption of somebody else's trials. I'll never forget seeing that passage play out. When I first had moved to Fresno, California and was working with a church there, one of the pastors on staff, just two weeks into my being there, we were sitting in a meeting and he got a text message and got up and ran out of the building in tears. He had just learned that his youngest child had died in the crib due to SIDS. It was an awful, awful tragedy. We all grieved with him. Such an incredibly painful loss. But I remember seeing how God's story would play out in this because that day as he sat in the house weeping with his wife and so many of us gathered around praying, another couple came over to the house. And it was a couple who themselves had just lost their son from SIDS just earlier. And that couple sat in the room with that pastor and his wife for hours, just weeping with them, praying with them, and ministering God's grace to them with the same comfort that they had received when they walked through their loss. And then what would happen is about three, four months later, I was invited to speak at a camp, and at the last minute, I had to cancel. And so I needed somebody to go speak for me, so I grabbed this pastor who had just kind of re-entered and said, you want to go up there and speak for me? He said, I'll do it. And so he went up there, and while he was up there, one of the directors of the camp lost his child due to SIDS as well. And in God's sovereignty, with my backing out last minute and him jumping in, God then used this pastor and his wife to now take the same comfort and counsel that they received in their loss and now use it to minister to this. And you know what's crazy? Several months after that, I went back up to that camp to speak again, and I ran into that director and I asked him, I said, how are you doing? And you know what he did? He opened up to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He had a Bible with him. He opened up to 2 Corinthians 1, and there on that page was the stamped handprint of the child that he had lost. There's nothing more sobering than that picture of that child's handprint stamped over 2 Corinthians 1. And that was his way of telling me, Shay, this pain that we have been through is awful and it is hard, but I know that God is good. And this handprint on this text reminds me that God will not waste this pain. He will redeem it for his glory and my good. And so church, I say all that, do you see what James 1 is all about? It's just the beginning point in our understanding of a theology of trials, a theology of suffering, that we don't have to perceive our trials as some cosmic accident detached from meaning and purpose, put on by a God who is a puppeteer of evil in our lives, but we can understand, know that we have a good and loving God who's sovereign over it all, who has allowed this hardship so that he can meet us in the midst of it, so that he can dispense his wisdom towards us, so that he can produce something in us which we cannot produce ourselves, which is a steadfast clinging to Jesus as our all in all hope. And as we sit under that counsel humbly, that he will indeed transform us, that we won't just be a consumer of God's mercy and God's comfort, but we'll now be a giver of it to a broken and hurting world that so desperately needs it until the day that Jesus returns or takes us home and makes it all right. And it's that very concept that we will look at next week when we look at the very hope that we can have in the midst of our suffering. Let me pray. Father, we once again thank you for this text. 
Thank you for giving us the counsel of your word. And though, Father, I don't want to treat our trials tritely or flippantly, they are hard and painful. And I know what some are going through right now, even as they watch this, are walking through immense pain. And God, you are aware of that. You are near to that because your own son went through it as well. And so, God, I pray right now that you would protect each one of us, guard our hearts and our minds from listening to the lies of the enemy who would want to deceive us and hold you in contempt. But instead, Lord, would you strip away those accusations, give us a posture of humility that we might sit under your counsel and glean from the wisdom that you have to show us, yield our lives to it that we might be transformed and be used as ministering agents for your glory and others' good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.